Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, as we go swimming. We are going to take a little swim here this morning in the next couple of weeks, and while we do so, we'll go under a couple of times. We'll throw a few terms and theological uh, conundrums at you, but we will come up for air as often as we can possibly do so, and by God's help, all of this will make as much sense as he intends for it to make in our lives, all right? All that is to say, this is a tough passage of Scripture, one that many people would actually avoid and even encourage you to do so, but we don't avoid things around here. We go after them, hopefully not where angels fear to tread, but uh, we go after them just the same, and so if you're there in Romans 9... Uh, I want to look at a big chunk of scripture just as a sort of a, just to kind of get our minds into this text a little bit, and this is otherwise an introduction to these next, uh, this next month and a half or so. And here we go, Romans 9 and verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so... But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Skip on down to verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, righteousness, that is, by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, that's why. But as if they were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Brothers, chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for Israel, is that they might be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We pray with me? Father, thanks for the opportunity to be able to introduce this passage of Scripture, one that is is certainly in your word, is true. We believe it, but we confess we don't comprehend it all. We do, even as we have sung, bow our hearts to you, Lord, and say you are God over all. And uh, we confess with Moses that the secret things belong to you, our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And may it ever be so. And may our analyzation always lead to adoration and nothing less. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've often argued that if you could erase all of your preconceived ideas and understanding of the first two chapters of the Bible and the creation account, and just read them for the very first time, you would conclude special creation. You would conclude that God created everything by divine fiat in six days. You would, you would never conclude evolution. Never in your foggiest imagination would you ever conclude that. I could wish, yeah, it is if I could wish one thing before entering this section of Scripture, it would be that everyone would lay aside all of their preconceived theological beliefs on God's sovereignty and election and of those he will save and of the the free wills, quote-unquote, of those who would choose Jesus. Just lay it all aside and let the Scripture speak for itself. I talked to a woman the other day near a pool while we were at a conference. She She defined herself as an agnostic agnostic and she was a hater of Christianity, God himself. And as I listened to her talk for about 10 minutes, I just listened to her lay her story out, I realized why she felt the way she did. And that's because of the horrendous abuse she had taken as a child and even into her marriage, which was now uh, dissolved. But we talked back and forth. She had actually read the Bible through and even studied it at one time in her life. And we were talking about God, and she made this interesting comment. She said, a God who wasn't in control of all things would not be a God at all. At that point, we agreed. These next three chapters are hard chapters. They are hard in the sense, for some at least, hard to take. Especially for those of you who would consider yourself a free will advocate. In fact, in my over 30 years of preaching the gospel, I have encountered a number of Christians who treat Romans 9 the way Jews treat Isaiah 53, like it doesn't exist. But it does exist. And God is inviting us 
not only to peer deeper into this section of Scripture, but to believe the words for what they are, the words of God. And in believing, we might see more deeply his wisdom. Now, theologically speaking, Romans chapter 9 is a pillow for the Calvinist and a torture chamber for the Arminian. I can still remember a friend of mine many years ago, and some of you will remember him that worked with us back at UPS way, way back in the day. His name was Will. He was a friend of mine. He was an Assemblies of God pastor. Good guy. Loved the Lord. Loved the Bible. Hated the doctrine of election and predestination, as any Assembly of God guy would. They just hate it. They hate this chapter. He hated this chapter. But he at least had the integrity of coming to us one night and saying, it's there. We said, what's there? Election is there. What are you talking about? I've been studying Romans 9 the other, these last couple of days, and I can't help but see it, he says. Can you believe that in spite of all that, he rejected the doctrine? Chose rather to go along with the history of his upbringing rather than the word of God itself. Very sad. On the other hand, when we get to the other bookend of this section in Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11 is a validation for the dispensationalist, but a dilemma for the theologically reformed. And the reason for that is because when you get to Romans 11, we see there is a future for Israel. Now, I won't take long here, but as grateful as I am, and I'm not being disingenuous, I'm being absolutely serious, as grateful as I am for the resurgence of reformed doctrine, the doctrines of grace, the greatness of God and all of his sovereignty that reformed teaching has brought back to the church in these days. I do have a few theological bones to pick with my, with my reformed brothers, and I give you three of them this morning. We're going under here for a little bit, okay? So just hang in there, all right? First, they're inconsistent hermeneutic. They're inconsistent hermeneutic. By hermeneutic, I mean the way they interpret the Bible. While espousing a literal interpretation of of Scripture, they, they, by default, they go back to their Augustinian slash allegorical approach to the Bible and, and interpreting it. Especially when it comes to the creation account that I alluded to a little bit earlier, and the church, which they view as the new Israel. It's sometimes called replacement theology. It's been around since Augustine who first espouses, basically said, Israel is no more. The church has taken it over. The church is the, is the new Israel. Romans 11, and we're, not, we're, not, we're just going to just flit over there today after a little bit, is a dilemma for them because it actually teaches that there is a future for Israel. Not just a future. It, it is, it's a dilemma because it teaches not only a future for Israel, but it gives the reasons that God has temporarily, temporarily set them aside. Here's a second bone I have to pick, and it's their heartless view toward evangelism. Now, I'm speaking generally because I I am thankful there are some within the Reformed persuasion, covenant theology that, that actually are evangelistic, and I thank the Lord for them. But generally speaking, and I speak from my own experience, and I've had a lot of it, there is a distinct lack of concern in that camp. 
for the lost by way of their actually going after them. The basic idea is, well, I mean, you know, God shows them they're going to get saved anyway. Why do we have to put forth such effort? Well, I don't know. Talk to Paul about it. Who said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain faith, uh, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Juxtaposed between human responsibility, you, know, you got human responsibility on one side and divine sovereignty on the other. Paul says, therefore I endure. I'm breaking my back. I'm, I'm breaking sweat. I'm going after it. I endure all things for what? The sake of those God's going to save anyway. Paul never had a problem with this. But our friends in that camp, generally speaking, seem to. Furthermore, they're faced with a huge dilemma when we come to you know, the middle of the sandwich in, in, in Romans chapter 10. And when you got, how are they going to call on the person they, how are they going to call on Jesus whom they've not believed? How are they going to, you know, how are they going to believe unless somebody is sent? How, you know, he, he goes through that whole thing in, in that little litany in, in chapter 10 and verse, uh, there it is, verse 14. How they're going to call on him and they've not believed. How will they believe in him whom they've never heard? How will they hear without somebody preaching to them? How will they preach unless someone is sent? And you read these words of Paul, you see that we've got to send people out. We need to send out missionaries. We need to plant churches. People need to hear about Jesus. And that's a dilemma for those who, who fall into the ditch that says because God has chosen people in eternity past, therefore we don't have any exercise. We have no responsibility. We have responsibility. And this passage of Scripture is going to bring it out. My last bone is that I'm going to bring up is their position on limited atonement. Many of you have heard of the five points of Calvinism, otherwise known as the tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, Limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. I love that. I have one bone to pick, and that's the terminology, the theological implication, as well as the terminology of limited atonement. Here's why. Listen carefully. Because Scripture never lays out God's plan with such negativity. Did you catch that? Scripture never, never lays out God's plan with such negativity, limited atonement. The Bible does, listen carefully, positively lay God's plan out in that he has chosen those he will save. That he, has, he will save his elect. But nowhere is double predestination ever taught. That's the theological implication of limited atonement. In fact, skip down to verse 22. If you look at verse 22 here, it says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You see that phrase, prepared for destruction? That is a, are you ready for this? That is a passive verb. It's not an active verb. It's a passive verb. In essence, this is what it's saying. If you go to hell, you go to hell by your own choosing. That's what it means. You will follow 
the natural inclinations of your sin and reject the salvation that God has offered to you. Double predestination teaches that God has chosen those who will be saved. We agree with that. The scripture is abundantly and positively clear on that. But it also teaches that God, therefore, by logic, has chosen those who will be destroyed in hell forever. And the Bible does not teach that. It doesn't matter how much your logic wants to line up with it. The scripture doesn't teach that. So, interestingly, by the way, the reform movement has responded to this historic inconsistency. And they have softened their position and they have called it definite atonement or, or particular atonement. By the way, a very welcome thing in my mind. I like that because it's positive. It's, it's directing us towards God, who, th- those whom God will save. It's not going beyond the word of God. And we don't want to go beyond the word of God. Amen? Now, suffice it to say that Paul anticipates this stuff is going to blow our minds. That's why he's going to conclude this whole section of Scripture by saying, oh, the depths of the riches, you know, you know, the depths of the wisdom, both the riches and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And really, should it be any other way? Analyzation must lead to adoration, right? And that's what he's done here. I mean, even at the very beginning, when he starts talking about his, his passion for the Jews, he, he describes Jesus as God there in verse 5. It's, it's a great, one of the greatest and overlooked proof texts on the deity of Christ found anywhere in the New Testament. But God in his infinite wisdom has buttressed every single one of these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, with the bleeding heart of the Apostle Paul. Hence the title of my message, the subtitle at least, A Bleeding Heart for a Blinded People. You see his passion in chapter 9, those first five verses, we just read them. But look at the first one. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness of the Holy Spirit. It almost sounds like cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. What's that all about? He apparently... There's an implication here that people were doubting that Paul was burdened for his people, but you cannot sincerely, intellectually, and carefully read and study this passage of Scripture without seeing his heart just bleed all over it. It's breaking for his people. He says in verse 2, he says, For I could wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Have you ever said anything like that? Literally, the Greek says, my sorrow is great and the anguish of my heart is unceasing. It's hard and to most impossible to relate to this kind of anguish. But Paul had it. Much less his wish that he would be you know, cut off. If, you've had a, if you have had a child, and many of you have, who is raised to believe to love and to follow Jesus, but they chose not to? You know this feeling, right? I, I, I've been, I said one time, how is it that I have many children, almost all of which love Jesus, but I can't keep my mind off the one that doesn't? 
That's Paul. Evangelist of thousands. Church planner. Opening the corridor to the West. The apostle to the Gentiles. But a bleeding heart for his blinded people. How is your heart for people who are blind? The Jews aren't the only ones blind. 2 Corinthians 4 says everyone outside of Jesus is blind. Some of you are blind right now, and your life shows it. He says, I, I wish I could be accursed. That's the, that's the Greek word. That's that word, ananthema. It means to be damned. Don't ever accuse the Apostle Paul of having a cold heart. Jonah, yes. Paul, no. I mean, you think about it. Jonah wished that a whole bunch of people would die and go to hell so that he could live. Paul wished that he could die and go to hell so that a whole bunch of people could live, be saved. He had a bleeding heart. Ironically, he just finished saying that you saw at the end of you know, Romans 8 that that's not possible. The love of God won't let it happen. You're in. If you're in, you're in. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, or principalities, things present, things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, right? And then he just piles on these privileges that his kinsmen had. They're Israelites, verse 4. They have the adoption. God adopted them as a nation, from amongst the nations. The glory, obviously, the, this referencing the Shekinah glory, they, you know, we have them seeing his glory, at least a, a, a part of it. They had the temple worship. They had the promises that are They had the worship. They had the patriarchs. They could go all the way back to Abraham and just, just put a link there. And it even led them to Christ, the Messiah, God himself. And he says in verse, but then this is where he starts to get into the controversy. He says in verse 6, but it's not as if the word of God has failed for those, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So right away he takes this, and this is very practical, is it not? He's, very, he's clearly talking about the Jews as a people group. There's no other way to look at this. And it's just because, you've been, because you're an Israelite doesn't make you a child of God. And he begins to illustrate it, and we're going to get back into that in the days to come. But today, like the Jews of old, in spite of hundreds of privileges most of you have experienced, we hear things like, well... I've always been a Christian. That doesn't even make sense. But I hear it coming out of people's mouths almost every week. Well, I've always been a Christian. I got news for you. You have not always been a Christian. Nobody has always been a Christian. That's not possible. You must be born again. Amen? When George Whitfield was traveling around preaching, that was his sermon, you must be born again. And he had a woman accost him one day and said, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep saying every time you preach you must be born again? He looked at her and he said, because you must be born again. 
But the implication is when people make these kind of statements that, you know, since you've been raised in a Christian home, therefore you are a Christian. This, by the way, this passage of Scripture finds a parallel in John chapter 1. As many as received him, to them gave he the exousia, the authority, the power to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born, who were born not of blood, not because you were born into that family, nor by the will of the flesh, not because of your exertion, not because of your good works, nor by the will of man because your parents deemed you. I remember, honey, I prayed with you. You're saved, don't you remember? We prayed together when you were two and a half. But it's of God. John 1.13, it's of God. Salvation has always been of God. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. Boom. Some of you are claiming to be Christians, but you're not. You were raised in a Christian home. You were taught Christian principles. Christian morals were imposed upon you. You might even be a great patriot. It disturbs me when I see people wrap the flag around the cross as if, you know, a soldier that dies for their country, God bless them for so doing and helping us, and we honor them, rightly so. That doesn't make them a Christian. You've never really, from your heart, humbly bowed your knee to Jesus. As a Christian, as a new Christian, I got into a debate with a guy who was studying theology, as I was. I was just a brand new Christian and we were studying theology. And he said to me, he said, he accused me of synergism. I remember thinking, I don't even know what that means. So I asked him, what does that mean? He said, well, he, your problem is you believe that it's not just God, but your, your actual prayer that you prayed saved you. That's synergism. That's, that's, that's you and God sort of working together. And that's how you got saved. And I went, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I got, it, may, it did put me back on my heels for a little bit. I thought, Wait a minute. No, I'm not trusting my prayer. Did I pray? Yes. Did my prayer save me? No. Jesus Christ saves us, not your prayer. And I can't count the number of people who say, well, I prayed the prayer. I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. Your prayer doesn't save you. What I said to that guy was, I I made it very clear. My prayer to be saved was simply a response to what God had already done in my heart. Salvation is a, are you ready for this? Salvation is a, a monergenistic act of God. Monergistic, that means singular act of God. God working alone. Monergistic, God works alone to save us. Most churches are synergistic. Believing that it's God, you know, laying it out and you responding. It's you. You've got the light inside of you. You reach up to God. God reaches down to you and together you come together and you're saved. That's bad. That's not how you get saved. Salvation is all of the Lord. You say, well, I thought it was necessary that I respond to the gospel. It is. You say, well, I thought I I needed to repent and believe in the gospel. You do. 
You say, well, I thought it was necessary that we plead for others to be saved. It is. We're not there. Romans 10. It's coming. You say, well, if salvation is totally of God, then what is my contribution? Your sin. That's it. You give God your sin. He gives you his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal, by the way. Now, this does not sit well with our prideful spirits, does it? I'm just introducing this thing. This does not sit well with our proud, Americanized, capitalistic, rugged, individualistic ideology that virtually all of us have been raised in. You earned it. You worked for it, right? You deserve it. it you got it coming. Why do we hate being overly taxed? Because the government is taking what I have earned and that you're, they're using it for their own purposes. That's my money. That's my hard work and dollars. You're stealing from me. And so some of us, we sit there smug in our pews. We sit there smug in our chairs and smug in our spirits. And we think, I deserve this. I've been raised in a Christian home. I, I've done right. I've, I've lived mo- a morally clean life. I, I've taught Sunday school. I've been a deacon. I've served others. I've got good kids. I've got a good marriage. I've got a good job. I make good money. And without realizing it, we have just formed our own self-righteous approach to God. Our churches are filled with people who have prayed prayers, mimicked their mamas, walked aisles, but you're little more that you're you're little more than little Charlie McCarthy doll sitting on the lap of Edgar Bergen. And because most of you don't know who Charlie McCarthy was, here he is. This is Charlie McCarthy, he's the doll. Here he is with Marilyn Monroe. Probably the only guy in that day didn't, that didn't have feelings for Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> That's because he wasn't real. He had no heart. And neither do some of you for God. You're no different than a Charlie McCarthy doll. And it will only be when you recognize your need for the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ that you will cry out from your heart and be saved. And this leads us back to our text. As we will see, salvation is not a matter of justice. It's a matter of mercy. You know, like the woman who comes to the photographer after a picture, she says, this is terrible, I, I, I want justice. What do you mean? She, I did the best I could. She goes, no, this is a terrible picture of me. I want justice. And, you know, the photographer looked at her and goes, lady with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> if you ask for justice, you'll get justice. You don't want justice. I guarantee you, you want mercy. And while God has chosen a people group, namely Israel, he saves individuals. Which is why after declaring God's divine sovereignty in Romans chapter 9, he will declare human responsibility in Romans chapter 10. This is why he makes the beeline for the heart. 
If you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, verse 9, that Jesus is Kurios, Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, a person believes unto righteousness. It's always been that way. When Spurgeon was accosted by a woman one day who asked him how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility, he looked very kindly at her and he said, Madam, I never reconcile friends. By the way, God has always been seeking hearts for himself. Always. It's always been this way. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Joel, the prophets, said to these legalistic, hardened, do-gooder Israelites, tear your heart, not your garments. The essence of the new covenant as laid out by the Old Testament prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, is that God is changing hearts and changing lives. And he lays it out in Ezekiel 36 where he says, I will give them a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone with you. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. My spirit will I place within you. And watch this. I will cause you to walk in my ways. When Jesus conversed with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he was blowing Nicodemus' mind. Do you remember that? What? How can these things be, he says to Jesus. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're one of the primary teachers in all of Israel. You didn't know these things? Nicodemus should have known this. The problem is our human nature will always make a beeline back to ourselves. we got to have our filthy hands involved in this thing somehow, right? But God says, it's all me. It's not you. You just respond to what I've done for you. Even in our study of Romans chapter, back in chapter 2, he says in verses 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, or circumcision, outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's always been that way. The very reason the Jewish People as a nation were set aside was because of their unbelief. Their hearts weren't in it. That's why I read the last part of of chapter 9. He refers to the fact they didn't seek it by faith. And Paul will, he's going to go even, he's going to drop an even deeper bombshell when he comes to chapter, when we get to chapter 11. But chapter 9 deals with his, these first five verses, he deals deals with his passion for the Jewish people. Chapter 10 will deal with his prayer. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. He's praying for them. I I bear you witness. They've got a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. In chapter 11, he's going to deal with the the prospect of the Jews. That that is, there is a future. And at that point, he's going to pull back the divine curtain, so to speak. 
and allow us to peek in and see how God, you know, by temporarily setting the Jewish people aside for their unbelief, is working his plan out even now in order to bring a wildly large amount of people groups from all nations and tribes and tongues to himself. In fact, just give you a peek into it, chapter 11 and verse 11. So I asked, did they, the the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Can I get an amen? You better say amen. Unless you're a Jew. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And you skip down to verse 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Did you see the word in verse 25, until? Think about that when you listen to these words. Jesus, one day, just before he died, he looks over. I've stood there. I've been there on the Mount of Olives, looking across on the Temple Mount. And they had rejected him. His people had rejected him. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you stone those who are sent to you. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Behold, your house is now laid desolate. And you, listen to this carefully, you will not see me henceforth. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word until that Jesus said is here as well. That's full of implication. There's coming a day when the Jewish people will look upon the one, Zacharias says, whom they have pierced, and they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then all Israel will be saved. Hallelujah. And so Paul's passion in verse, in chapter 9, gives way to his prayer in chapter 10. And look what he says in chapter 10 and verse 2. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God, verse 1, is that they would be saved. Implication, they're not. Even though, look at verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a what? They have a zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. Why? For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He boils it down to faith. Their zeal was real. Their zeal was fervent, even sincere. But listen carefully. No amount of zeal ever saved anyone. Ever. Did you catch that? This is the reason why the writer of Proverbs says it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. Have you ever read that? Our faith 
is predicated on truth. There's the foundation of our faith right here, okay? What scripture, what God has said in his word, right? That's where our faith is, is found. It's not found in my emotion, even though God intermingles with my emotion. He intermingles with my zeal. I should be zealous. I should, be, I should, desire, to reach, I should desire to reach out by faith and say, Lord, save me. But it's all by faith. The psalmist said, the Lord is near to all who call on him. That's a good thing, isn't it? Amen? But that's only half the verse. To all who call upon him in truth. There's a lot of people calling upon God. Some of you have been calling upon God. But you haven't been calling upon him by way of truth. And if you don't come to him by way of truth, you don't get to him. God always saves those who come to him by faith in accordance with the truth. The Jews were not approaching God with the knowledge of true righteousness. And in fact, Paul could relate to this. He had been there, done that. Frankly, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Catholic or a Protestant or a Baptist. If, you're, if your trust is in anything you have done, including your prayer, your accomplishments, your successes, your Christian living or service, hear me, you are still lost, you are still blind, you are still hellbound. And you need to hear the words of the Apostle Paul in the next chapter again. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, Jesus is Lord, if you would believe in your heart, not just in your head, but in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. It's with your heart that you believe under righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. God reigns, amen? And we submit to him. If God has spoken to your heart today, here are a couple of things I would like you to consider. Take out that insert from the bulletin or the one in front of you where you're sitting. And I would just ask you a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Without praying about it, you should be able to instantly answer this question. Do I have a passion for the lost? Do I have a passion for the lost? That's a simple yes or no. Here's a second question. Do I pray for the lost in my life as well as those in the world? I don't mean just the general, you know, Jesus save people. Do I pray for the lost in my life. So, do I have a passion for the lost? Yes or no? Do I pray for the lost? Yes or no? 
And the last question I would have for you this morning is this. Am I lost? Are you lost? The Son of Man, by his own declaration, gave a purpose statement for his life. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. You don't seek and save. He seeks and saves you. And if your heart says, I want this, I am lost, I want to place my faith in Jesus who died for me and rose again, then do so right now from your heart. Let's pray together. And we'll take up an offering. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to open up this passage of Scripture and introduce ourselves to it. We ask in the name, through the blood of Jesus Christ, that you would open up our hearts and minds today. That we would exalt you because, Lord, you will be not just analyzed, but adored. And we adore you, we submit to you, we praise you for your greatness and your overall work in our lives. And while we confess again that we don't understand it all, Lord, we know this, that you have, you have made it very clear that if we would reject the inclinations of our sinful spirits and fall upon your mercy for what Jesus has done for us, we will be saved. I pray for those in this room right now who would say, I am lost. I need to be saved. If that's you, dear one, my friend, and you understand you are a sinner and God has made that clear to you and you understand that Christ Jesus died for you and rose again, that's clear to your mind, that's clear to your heart, then just say, Jesus, I believe this. I receive this. Come into my life and save me. You're just responding to what God has already done to you. follower of Jesus, do you have a passion for lost people? Paul did, even though he knew things were worked out from eternity past. Follower of Jesus, do you pray for the lost in your life? Paul did. We exalt you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.